uh, what we're going to do now is chase after a little bit of Psalm 23. We're in the middle of this series. If you have your Bible and you want to open there, that's great. Uh, it's going to be up here on the screen, and what I want us to do is uh, just read it together. We're in a bit of a rhythm of doing this as a community, and I thought it would be good for us uh, to do it as well today. You can just remain seated. We'll read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We are uh, in this series. We've described uh, how many churches within the community are speaking on these exact same passages. And uh, this morning, our time is going to be focused on just two verses verses 4 and 5. Really, these are just two extended metaphors where there's a lot of imagery, a lot of detail to kind of describe a situation in this particular psalm from David's perspective. So the two verses are these, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or in this case, dark, darkness or gloom, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff comfort me. And then the second image we're going to look at is, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And really, this passage, uh, I think, for me, is exciting for two primary reasons. It gives us the freedom to really reimagine what this passage is saying. Anytime you use metaphor or illustration, you have a chance to reimagine the passage a little bit. And then second, It gives us a freedom to place ourselves in the story. I think David, in some ways, is inviting us in. He's saying, this is a way that I'm understanding life and how God is operating in my world. And you also can put yourself in David's shoes and kind of experience it from his vantage point and then begin to draw out, what is this particular story telling me? So I think we have freedom to reimagine the passage because what we typically do as Bible students or scholars or if you're going to study a particular passage, what you generally do is you come to the passage and you first say, well, what is the author trying to communicate? What is he intending to say? What is he really trying, what's the point he's really trying to make? And then from there, you move to, well, how did the original audience receive it? How would they have understood this particular passage? What would it have meant to them? Then we fast forward to 2013, and we kind of extract for us today, what are the relevant truths? How do we begin to apply it? What does it really mean to us? And so that's what we tend to do when we come to Bible passages. The unique thing about this particular portion of the psalm, and this particular psalm in general, is that because it's so full of imagery, so full of metaphor, that we have the ability to kind of understand that what David is writing is both real and imagined. So these are things that are personal for him and yet hopeful. These are things that uh, 
He draws from his life experience, and yet he's imagining them, wishing that these things would be true. He's confident that they will become reality, but in some cases, they have not yet transpired. So he's creating for us some unique opportunity to imagine what is it that David was walking through, what is it that we are walking through, and then how, does, how do those things intersect with our very life? It's kind of uh, if you take an object and you begin to look at it from several different lenses or angles, you begin to see it quite differently. If you were to take any given object and you were to place it on a table and then look at it from different perspectives, people might describe it differently, and yet it's the exact same object. That's the cool thing about pictures or imagery. So when I was growing up, there was this magazine that my dad would occasionally get. It was the games magazine, and he liked to like do these games in it, but it had this one section at the back where they would show these pictures, and you had to figure out what the picture was. What they would do is they would zoom in really close, and you'd see a bunch of these little objects with all kinds of different color, and then you'd stare at it long enough and kind of look at it and realize, like, oh, that's just a group of marbles. And they had zoomed so, so tight to the picture that you had to look at it long enough to reveal the object that was there. So I'll give you a couple examples. Here's the first one. Now, some of you might be able to see it, might be able to understand what it is. The image is a little bit dark. Any guesses on what that is? Okay, so some said violin, some said a bass. I asked someone earlier, they're like, oh, it's the letter J. True, it is. Or, or it's wood paneling. or it's. I mean, you can look at it and begin to see it from a unique perspective or angle, but people who are more accustomed or have been around musical instruments might look at it and immediately see it for what it is. Here's the next one. Another simple one. Okay, a microphone. Maybe if you drink a lot of tea, you might say a tea infuser. Okay, yeah. But anyhow, again, some of us, when we look at it, we're in tune to a particular item, and so we instantly think of it. I could give you example after example after example of these kind of pictures, but you get the idea that there, there are times where we look at a particular object, and from our vantage point, we can extract an understanding of it that someone else from a completely different perspective gets a different vantage point, gets a different application. So there's a very clear understanding of what this passage is saying, but there's a real broad range of applications, ways that we can allow this truth to speak to us. And I think it's because we're all coming from different perspectives. We've all had different life experiences. We're probably all in different spiritual places at this moment. And so how this text speaks or resonates with us will largely depend on the Holy Spirit and how He begins to draw out things for us this morning. So my hope over the next few moments is to look at these two images or these two metaphors that are described and kind of describe them a little bit and then allow us to apply our meaning or understanding based on the application God is drawing out, okay? So, look at these two, and I want you to feel freedom to put yourself in this story. Verse 4 starts off with the idea that uh, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we fear no evil, for God is with us, His rod and staff 
comforts us. Now, David is obviously writing from his perspective or his um, time spent as a shepherd. He probably, on many occasions, was found himself in a similar situation to what he was just describing, where he's leading sheep into a particular valley. One image that comes to mind is uh, this particular image. Oftentimes, when we think of a valley, the reason shepherds would direct their sheep to the valley is because that's where the best grazing was often. They would, they would go to a place where their sheep could spread out, they could have a little bit of freedom, that they would feel comfortable lying down, that there wouldn't be this jagged terrain, that they could kind of find some serenity or some peace. The other reason they would do it is in certain climates, the weather would change, and as it changed, things would begin to dry up. But you could always trust in gravity, and that water would move down from the mountains into the valleys. And so fresh streams and fresh water would still be available. Vegetation would grow up around those. So there was always a space or a place for your sheep to go. It was an ideal setting. And yet, often to get there, you might pass through an image that looks something like this. Where you're on this treacherous road, making your way to this beautiful valley. And a lot of times when we look at this passage, and the way that it is often talked about is we focus more, not on the valley, but we focus on the shadow of death. We focus on the the situation where you have these mountains, you have this past that they're maybe wandering through, and from all of the dark little crevices, the little caves, the spaces off to the side, we imagine the shepherd being thwarted by enemies. Perhaps it's bandits that are coming out to steal something. Perhaps it's people who are kind of trying to give the shepherd a difficult time. We even imagine David picturing that bear that comes out of nowhere, that wolf that comes out of nowhere, and he has to fight it off to protect the sheep. And so we imagine this picture of death, the shadow of death, of darkness. What's interesting is in the Hebrew... The word death isn't present, and in many ways it isn't even implied in the passage. Rather, the passage is translated best as a deep darkness or a gloom. You walk through this space of deep darkness or gloom. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been there or you are there. It's that place in life where you feel most vulnerable is that space where it seems like you're in a pressure zone. The walls are kind of closing in. Everything's kind of ramping up. It's getting more difficult. You're more pressured. Um, the, The tension builds. It's when you feel the most weak, the most able to just fall apart. Maybe you've been in those spaces. Um, My daughter, Evie, given you a couple of illustrations of her lately, but she was in one of those spaces just the other day. We went to uh, the YMCA out in the valley, and uh, her and I have this uh, love, she loves, I hate relationship with the water slide. So she loves it so much that like by the 20th time I'm climbing three flights of stairs to ride it, I'm like, Evie, I, really, do you really want to go again? Do we have to 
do this again, and she's very adamant we should. And uh, so we were about halfway through, I think we did about 17 times in a row, and we were halfway through uh, our time, and, and she gets more like excited and re- ready to go every time we get to the top. And usually what we do is we sit down, and I kind of grab a hold of her, we slide off together at the same time, and we're, we're going down, and I, I let my hands off of her, and she's right there, and she's just loving it. And then I just scoop her up as we glide into the water, and her head stays above water the whole time, and she's, like, loving it. Well, I sit down at the top. I I get ready, and she takes off. Yeah, yeah, she takes off. And I'm like, this wasn't part of the plan. So I take off as quick as I can. And at this moment, like, at first, I'm thinking, no worries. I'm going to catch her. This won't be a problem at all. And then I started to realize, unlike I had ever realized before, that she was right in the slipstream. I mean, she's catching the water perfectly, is sliding. And I, for the first time in my life, felt like a guy on a tube that couldn't go anywhere. I'm like, I'm going so slow, and this distance is gaining. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm the worst dad in the world. I just am feeling horrible. We're rounding curves. She's, like, fighting to get back up and is turning and, like, flailing. And, yeah, just, I'm horrible. And, and she's getting closer and closer to impeding disaster. I, I know she's feeling those walls closing in. It's that pressure zone of life. And it, uh, Hannah told me the other day, I never finish my stories. So, yes, we do have a water heater in our house. It's great. Um, but I never finish my story. So we get to the end of the slide, and uh, I come... She had beat me around the corner, and then I come around the corner, and her just little hair is floating on the surface. And I, I jump in, and I pull her out, and she's, like, startled. And, and then we wrote it another, like, 12 times. So it was great. <laughs> she was happy. It was good. But in, in that moment, I could just imagine in her mind, like, Dad, the, the pressure's building. I, I, I feel vulnerable. I feel weak. I can't. I can't get to, the, I can't save myself. And she's right in that space. And you've been in that space before. I've been in that space before. Some of you are in that space right now where there's this pressure, this vulnerability. And in that space, what's interesting is David says there should be no fear. That I have no fear for you are with me. You are with me. The very core of this psalm is God's presence with us. In the midst of vulnerability, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of all of it, the main focus of this psalm is God is present with you. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it's His presence that really changes everything for us, or it should I remember I was uh, a freshman in high school, all of uh, 98 pounds when I entered my freshman year, strapping young lad. And uh, I went to this unique high school in Pennsylvania where um, they, they had middle school separate, so you had 4th through 8th in middle school, and then you went to high school where you had ninth and 10th, and then there was an entirely separate high school where you had 11th and 12th. And um, people would come from all over the country to study the, the different way that the school was set up. And I went to the ninth and 10th grade school, and I was 
Uh, remember, there was this time that was coming up, and it was several months away, and it was building, and the sophomores talked about it all the time. It was Squash the Frosh Day. And Squash the Frosh Day was coming, and it's the time when people that could still fit in lockers would find themselves in lockers. I know I could fit because one day after school I tried it just to, just to make sure, just to see if it could happen. It could. And so I was nervous. I was anxious. I'm 98 pounds. This is a day I'd been dreading. But I had, over the first part of the year, made sure I became friends with Don Schiffer. Don Schiffer was, he was a strapping young fellow. This was a guy that while he, we were in high school, we graduated together. His, uh, I think it was his junior and senior year, he benched, bench press, 420 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I benched like 40. He, <laughs> 420. I mean, this was a strong fella. And so, I remember like being nervous most of the day as I'm walking through the hallway. Something's going to happen, and my book bag's going to get knocked over or whatever. But there was this one period where I was in like math class with Don. And when we walked out of math class to walk toward like lunch or whatever, I'm walking right next to Don. And you know what? No fear. None. It, it like totally changed the way I walked down that hallway. I'm going like, yeah, I can do this, right? This is good. Because he was present, right? Because something changed. It, wasn't, it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Don being present. The same is true with us. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the gloom, the passage is indicating that there's presence, that he is with us, and it changes everything. David goes on to say that part of what changes everything is this idea that his rod and his staff will comfort us. His rod and his staff will comfort us. He's describing two different instruments. The first instrument would be kind of more or less considered like a baseball bat. It was a rod that would be used to thwart enemies, to to beat away prey or to take care of the sheep in a particular way. And so what David is saying is that in these moments of difficulty, in these moments of distress, that there are times God is going to be your protector. That he's going to thwart those opposed. And then the staff is really this picture of a means of God kind of correcting you and me. That we begin to wander off the path a little bit and he simply hooks us and pulls us back. It might not feel pleasant right at the time, but what he's doing is he's realigning our path with his. That we're walking now with the shepherd again as opposed to in a different direction. And so David says, I draw, I draw strength from the idea that you are present, but also that with the rod you are working to change my circumstances, and sometimes he does. And then with the staff, you're working to change me. So this first picture, this first extended metaphor is one of God's presence and one where he comforts and leads and protects. Which moves us to the second metaphor. The second metaphor is this. Verse 5, that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that he anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. What David is doing is he's shifting illustrations. 
Uh, Some would say this continues to be a shepherd illustration. I believe he's starting to draw from a different picture where he's starting to draw from his understanding of what it would be like to be a king. Here's an image that kind of comes to mind where you've got this huge banquet, this divine hall where the leaders are sitting at this head table and everybody is there and it's elegant and it's beautiful. And David gives this extended metaphor where what he begins to do is describes a setting. And you can imagine or put yourself in this setting where what happens is the king, who's not David in this story, the king becomes the host and welcomes people to his table. He has this grand banquet where he invites all these guests. Pomp and circumstance is happening. It's just a glorious event. And in the midst of it, He doesn't just invite friends. He doesn't just invite noblemen. He doesn't just invite all of those who sing the king or queen's praises. No, he invites even his enemies. Even those who are opposed to the kingdom, those who desire a change of power, those who are trying to stir up dissension in the kingdom, he invites even them. He invites the enemies. Now imagine, as David was at this time, he's imagining that they're not just the king's enemies, more or less, they're really his enemies. So put yourself in David's situation. He's around a table with his enemies, those that don't have his best in mind, those who desire for him no good, those who have spoken ill about him. Those who continue to hurt him and really are callous to the effects, but seem not to care at all that they continue to be an enemy of David. They relish it. Now for David, he may have been drawing from personal experience, but might not have been drawing from the personal experience of enemies outside of the kingdom. Sometimes we think when we think of enemies, we tend to immediately think of, well, there were a opposing nations that were wanting to war against Israel, there's a very good chance that what David is doing is describing enemies that are on the inside. He's describing those that are perhaps even closest to him. He might even be describing the former king of Israel. Think about it. David has this Amazing victory over Goliath. People begin to sing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. That he's the hero. And Saul begins to see the attention is no longer directed toward him. And then David's life is turned upside down. There begins to be lies spread. There begins to be an all-out attack or assault on David. There's this pursuit of him. There's this driving him away. All these things are happening. And David is describing this scene in which the enemies are all around. And what's interesting about this passage is that David doesn't imagine the enemies to be removed. He doesn't say, hey, when you have enemies, God is just going to remove all of them. He doesn't say it's just going to go away. Instead, this is an amazing picture. There's this room filled with this banquet table. And all the enemies are around. 
And the only reason they're all there is because they want war in the presence of the king. And so the king, his presence stabilizes the room, but they're still present. And you can imagine David feels their glares, the hatred that oozes from them. And then God, the king, in the midst of this scene, has David at the head table, has David sitting next to him to his right in a place of honor. And then he hands David the cup that's overflowing, which signifies abundance. He places in front of him a plate that's filled. He lavishes on him good gifts. And then in the midst of all of his enemies, he stands David up, pours oil on his head, declares honor, affirmation, love, I mean, you've got to imagine what David is thinking in that moment in front of all of his enemies. I mean, I don't know what I'd be thinking. In your face. You know? Like, what do you have now? Look at this. You see this? Right in the midst of whatever it is that's going on, right in the midst of your enemies, he raises you up and he says, this is who I love. And this is who I affirm. This is who I honor. This is who I am with. This is my chosen one. This is the one that I have given the kingdom for. Amazing picture. Amazing picture of affirmation and love. It reminds me of that passage in Romans 8 where Paul is talking and he says, who is against us? Who could be against us if God is for us? Who could bring a charge against us if God is on our side? Who could separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. Both of these illustrations, in my opinion, communicate stuff that David was experiencing or imagining or hoping for. But I also think there are things that can be the same for us, that we can put ourselves in those shoes, that we can begin to imagine what are the things that are kind of closing in around us and what is his posture in those times? Who are the enemies that are in our midst, and what is his posture towards us in those times. And what stood out to me the most about this particular passage is this, that there are incredible pictures in this text today about us. That he affirms us, that he loves us, that he protects us, that he cares for us. But the most startling picture that I want us to grasp this morning about the text is this. While this text speaks to us, it really is all about him. That none of what I described this morning would be possible without him. That without him, I mean, this is really the essence of the gospel, is it not? That God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. That when we're in the midst of the valley of the shadow of deep darkness and gloom, when pressure is there, when it's closing in, when we're vulnerable when we're about to go underwater and have our little hair float up at the top, in those moments, we're done for, except for Him. In those times when the enemy is around, we are done for, except for Him. That is the Gospel. That when I could not do for myself anything, when I could no longer overcome my sin, when I could no longer make things right between God and I myself, that God stood in my place. He became the opportunity for me to have freedom. 
That is the beauty of the gospel. That is what this text is really all about. It is a reminder that he is with us. And that when he is with us, it changes everything. My challenge to you is to reflect on that this week. To sense his presence. To put yourself in these metaphors. And to allow them to speak as we meditate on them this week. Let's stand. And what I want us to do is just quote again Psalm 23 as we're dismissed. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My prayer today is the prayer in Romans that says, May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Lord, give us your spirit in extra measure this week. May we have hope as we sense your presence in the midst of whatever it is we go through. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.